Welcome to Plodcast, episode 61. Great to have you. So I want to begin uh, this opening segment by talking about Roe, Roe v. Wade, and the abortion of the American family. Uh, of course, we don't want to forget the carnage that um, has been perpetrated among the unborn. Um, over 50 million young children have lost their lives because of the abortion industry. Um, but that's not the only damage. That, that is the central bloody carnage. But that's not the only problem. Uh, there, there is another huge part of this that, need, that we need to remember. And that was the, the decision, the Supreme Court decision uh, in Roe, in effect, delegitimized the American family and made, in principle, every child a bastard. The reason children die is because their fathers have been disenfranchised. Their fathers have been taken out of the picture. They have no earthly legal father who has the authority or the right to speak for them. So uh, what, what do I mean by this? Well, Roe famously decided that a, uh, when they found, the, um, <laughs> they found the right to privacy in the uh, Constitution, which is incidentally not there, they found it in the penumbra of the Constitution, in the shadow of the Constitution. They, it felt Constitution-y to them. So they found uh, the right to privacy there. And they, so they therefore said the, uh, the decision-making, the decision to abort a child is a decision that is made by whom? Well, according to the Supreme Court, the decision to abort a child or not was to be made by the woman, by the mother, and by her doctor. There's a woman involved, there's a, there's a man involved, but the man is not that woman's husband. So if a man marries a woman, now for, first, if, if you're dealing with a woman who's pregnant because um, she's been sleeping around and she doesn't know who the father is and, and the fathers, the father and or fathers, potential fathers, have already taken themselves out of the picture, that, that's something that the law has to take into account. But when Roe was handed down, the, the right of any pregnant American woman, period, was granted. So a 16-year-old girl who was um, uh, sleeping with her boyfriend who got pregnant, she can get an abortion. Um, a woman who is raped can get, a, get, can get an abortion. A woman who, has, who is married, has three children, and doesn't want another one can get an abortion. Now, what the, the thing that is striking about this is that if a man promises in a legally binding covenant to be faithful to this woman, to bring, uh, you know, to provide for her and to provide for their children together, and then a, th a third party, the government, can come in and say to the wife, you can kill this child, you can kill that man's son, you can kill that man's daughter, even though he's your lawful legal husband. And you can do it without consulting with him. Uh, you can do it without getting his permission. You can, get, you can do this without his involvement. What, what does that decision 
say in effect? Well, it says in effect that there's no such thing as a, as a family. It says there's no such thing as marriage. The rights and prerogatives of being married are worthless. Uh, if, if a man cannot uh, be part of, is not permitted by law, is not permitted by law to have a say uh, as to whether his child lives or dies, then he is simply a nullity. He is taken out of the picture. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that if the Supreme Court had decided that uh, that the decision to abort the child is to be made by both the husband and the wife together with the doctor, that that would have been a moral thing to do. Um, it wouldn't have been moral. It's not it's not uh, right for the man, the father, and the mother together to decide to abort a child. And many uh, many women who get abortions are pressured into getting the the, uh, the abortion by the child's father. Uh, that's that's unrighteous. That's wicked. That's bad. But the thing I'm interested in, the thing I'm going after here, is the abortion of the American family. Um, th- what we're basically saying is that marriage vows don't confer very much at all. They there there are, there are a lot of downside things that are conferred by it. Um, uh, child support uh, and divorce proceedings. There's a lot of there are a lot of negatives, but where are where are the positives? What authority? Uh, what authority? What position? What standing? What stature does a man have when it comes to this kind of decision? Well, the Supreme Court said basically none, and uh, and we should say, uh, you know, if we had a biblical law order. Uh, we would say that neither the husband nor the wife have the authority to kill the child. But if you come in and say just the woman can decide to kill the child and the husband has no voice or no say in protecting the child, then you're saying that legally speaking, we don't care that he took vows. We don't care that he took responsibility. We don't care that he is her lawfully wedded husband. All right, so we're episode uh, 61 of our podcast, and we come to our book review uh, section. And And what I'm going to do here is review something that's kind of a book. It's not really a book. Well, it's a, it's, it's a book in that I bought it on Audible. Uh, so in recent, uh, recent years, I've taken to uh, supplementing my reading with um, uh, Audible books that I, I, I got a a rig in my truck, and I listen to books in three-minute increments. Moscow's not a very big town, and so um, three minutes drive to work, and I listen to a little bit, or I might drive three blocks and listen to a little bit. But I chip, I chip away at books this way and, and probably can finish an average-sized book in, in a couple of weeks just uh, listening to snippets at a time. Anyway, I'm listening to uh, lots of Audible books now. So... Uh, I noticed as I was looking for C.S. Lewis uh, books uh, on the Audible website that there was a um, uh, one called Christology, Cosmology, and C.S. Lewis by Michael Ward. And what this actually is is a series of 13 or 14 lectures 
that Ward gives. Now, Ward is the author of the one of my favorite books ever, which is Planet Narnia. Ward is the gentleman who uh, basically discovered the hidden kappa element that Lewis had embedded in his Narnia stories, and that and that kappa element is the fact that each one of the seven, each one of the seven books is associated with one of the seven planets. So, um, the silver chair is associated with the moon. Voyage of the Dawn Treader is associated with the sun. The horse and his boy is associated with Mercury. The last battle with Saturn. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe with Jove, uh, with Jove or Jupiter. Uh, Prince Caspian is associated with um, uh, with Mars, and um, the magician's nephew nephew is associated with Venus. So. Um, Planet Narnia is a detailed and exhaustive treatment of this and tells how Michael Ward came across that insight, uh, brilliant insight, which was um, uh, a clue that was given to him in a poem that Lewis wrote about the seven planets called, uh, called the planets. And, um, uh, and there was a line in there of, about sin, uh, uh, winter past and sin forgiven. And, and the lights came on. Winter passed and sin forgiven reminded him of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, uh, where it was always winter and never Christmas. And then winter is passed. Uh, Aslan breaks the power of winter and, of course, forgives Edmund's sins. Well, then once, once with that clue, Ward went to, went to town and, um, and developed all that in his book, Planet Narnia. Now, if you uh, are interested in pursuing this, um, he also wrote a a uh, popular street-level treatment of the same thing in a book called The Narnia Code. Um, so Planet Narnia is fantastic uh, scholarly work. The Narnia Code, popular level uh, writing on the same subject. And then this uh, lecture series, Christology, Cosmology, and C.S. Lewis, which is largely uh, um, on the same theme. He walks through the different books and, and shows all the different uh, planetary uh, um, influences, illusions that Lewis embedded in these, uh, in these books. And he also has some very interesting uh, discussion of how uh, a character like Aslan can be suffused throughout the books, even in those books where he, he, the appearances that he makes on the, uh, on the printed page are fairly rare. And it's very true that, that Aslan's presence is all the way through the books, and, and, you, and you might wonder, how did Lewis pull that off? How did Lewis do that? Well, this lecture series um, uh, outlines it, goes through it, does a very fine job. I, I commend it highly. Christology, Cosmology, and C.S. Lewis. So we come to Hamartiology in episode 61 of our podcast. Um, and we're continuing to address the word, the verb for sinning, and hamartano, and hamartia. Uh, God did not spare the angels who sinned, hamartano. And this is, um, we're in Second Peter now. Uh, God did not spare the angels who sinned, hamartano, and so he cast them into Tartarus, which was the lowest pit of Hades, Second Peter 2, 4. Um, Hades was a subterranean uh, place, a holding tank, um, where 
um, it was divided into compartments in the Greek mythology, Elysium. The Elysian fields were the, uh, the good side where the good people went. Um, Aeneas goes down to Elysium to see his father, Anchises. Uh, Anchises is a good guy. He's, he, he's there in Elysium. And as, as uh, Aeneas is going down, he sees the grim part, Tartarus. And Tartarus, the, the, that name for the, the dark part of Hades, is used by Peter in 2 Peter 2.4 without any redefinition. The, uh, the angels who sinned, the angels who hamartanoed, were cast down into Tartarus, and that was the lowest pit of Hades. False teachers are like the false angels, not staying within appropriate boundaries. They have eyes full of adultery, and they cannot quit sinning, hamartia. They are cursed children, 2.14. They are headed for a similar judgment. The believer who is not growing in grace and virtue is someone who has forgotten that he was previously purged and cleansed from his sins. 2 Peter 1.9. And remembrance of what God did at the beginning is a major help for those who want him to continue doing the same thing. Justification and sanctification are both received by the instrumentality of faith. God in the time of the sickness. God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.